This is Lee Habib with our American Stories. And now we bring you Doug Ryder with our latest edition of our Founders Series, a series about how everyday Americans risk it all to follow their dreams, how people amidst doubts and challenges become founders of great businesses and great movements. Here's Doug with the story. Today, on The Founders. As a baby boomer, this sounds odd, but I thought as a kid growing up that everybody went to war. I always thought there'd be a war you were gonna go to when you got to be of age. So when the Vietnam War came along, I signed up. I didn't even think twice about it. In this episode, we bring you the story of a man whose childhood dreams would become reality. I ended up flunking the first grade. I just didn't do my homework. I was, I kept getting in the way of my, going out and playing, playing army, <laughs> you know, with the fake plastic guns and stuff. And also I had a, a interest in aviation and would do these soap rock racer things with wings and try to go down these hills and try to fly. I flew for this Sultan of Oman. Yeah, I was a major in the Royal Oman Police Force for 13 years, and I flew the, for the King of Saudi Arabia as an air medical pilot for three years. A man who would use his vast experience to save the lives of people you often don't think about, but one day might need. My mission is to bring down the accident rate in helicopter EMS, air medical. The founder, the person responsible for America's air medical safety movement. On today's episode of The Founders, we bring you the story of Randy Maines. How can we stop the carnage? Following his military service, Randy found some less than mundane jobs around the world. Herding cattle with helicopters in Australia, discovering oil and training pilots in Iran. Though after the Iran hostage crisis, Randy's employer had to pull him out, and he was out of a job. Luckily, an old military buddy named Joe threw him a lifeline. And Joe was now flying this new thing called Helicopter Air Medical at Herman Hospital in Houston. And he called me up at the hotel and said, how would you like to have this new job flying uh, this new thing called Helicopter EMS? I said, what's EMS? He said, you're an air ambulance. And, and Herman Hospital is the second program in America. And we're, we're trying to prove to a doubting American public and medical field that the helicopter can be used to save lives in peacetime in America like we knew it could in Vietnam and in Korea. That was in uh, January 79. I said, yeah, I'm out of a job, Joe. That sounds great. So we moved to Houston. And Houston became like a training base because these air ambulance programs were popping up right and left. The medical director saw it as like a, a, a courtesy car bringing high paying trauma patients to their hospital, racking up big bills. So it throws out a broader net. And so it was exciting stuff, but we were working 72 hour shifts, 72 hours at the hospital, and then you had 72 hours off. Little sleep, 
high-stress situations. Themes like a disaster waiting to happen. Normally about 13 people die every year in helicopter air ambulance. The number one main type of accident, they usually try to avoid going into the clouds. They fly single pilot, they don't have another pilot with them. And what happens is they go into the clouds inadvertently in weather with a real dark environment where they can't see the horizon. They're not proficient in flying on instruments or, or comfortable flying on instruments like a fixed wing pilot. They lose spatial orientation. It, it's a scary situation. They call it inadvertent IMC, going inadvertently into instrument meteorological conditions. They don't know which way up is, and they crash. As an air medical pilot, you know, we flew 85% of our, our flights to the scene of the accident. I've seen, I've seen more, way, 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 way more blood, gore, and guts and human suffering flying as an air medical pilot than I ever saw in Vietnam. Now, why is that? Well, there's this thing called the golden hour. If you can transport a severely injured patient within an hour of the incident, the chances of survival are exponentially greater. We're talking about an accident so severe that the speed of a helicopter is the difference between life and death. Accidents so severe that the pilots don't have time to assess the weather conditions use their flying instruments, and mitigate other human error. An old buddy, David Sutcliffe, who at the time worked for the government of Oman, visited Randy in San Diego and stayed with him in his EMS quarters. He saw me keep getting these uh, calls at night, and this is after we got the, rid of the um, instrument helicopter. Now I'm back to flying a helicopter that's just using your eyeballs and staying visual. He couldn't believe that I was taking off in this kind of weather on a single engine helicopter. He said, Randy, if we ever get an opening in Oman, would you like to have a job there? I said, yes, because this is dangerous. This is dangerous. And when we come back, we'll continue with Randy Maines, and he was not the founder of a business. But he was a founder of something even more important, a movement, the air medical safety movement. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Main's story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
we continue with Randy Main's story, our Founders series, here on Our American Stories. And when we last left off, Randy was at a crossroads. There was the dangerous air ambulance work that he was doing, and there was this job abroad. Well, let's just say it was safer. Let's pick up where we last left off. I already lost, almost lost my life five times. Twice going inadvertently into the clouds and luckily getting myself down again. And this is in a helicopter that's not certified to fly on instruments. This is before the Bell 222. And three other times I almost lost my life. At night, landing to a, um, a road with, to a perfectly set up flare pattern by the first responders with crisscross wires overhead of it. They didn't look up. I could see it was dangerous. So yes, I wanted to get uh, out of it. And true to his word, about seven months later, he offered, I was offered a job flying with the Royal Oman Police in Oman. So I became a major, a uniform major. It was the best job I ever had in my life because we were treated like professionals. We were never questioned on our judgment like we were in air medical back in the States. EMS pilots aren't used to having any judgment on the safety of flying conditions at all. They would usually just get orders, fly out to an accident, and that was it. In fact, the hospital medical directors required pilots to lift off within five minutes of getting their orders. Barely any time at all to assess if the flying conditions would put themselves and the patients at risk. This is crazy. This is an organization, and these are people that are trying to save lives and they're killing people. To be clear, pilots aren't dying because of medical directors. They're dying for three reasons. One, inadequate instrument training that would otherwise allow pilots to reorient when getting turned upside down in the clouds. Two, pilots don't have proper safeguards to prevent these scenarios, such as GPS, autopilot, and two-engine helicopters stable enough to help mitigate bad weather and human error. And three, they're flying single-engine helicopters with no space for a co-pilot to help guide them out of sticky situations. I saw a different paradigm when I left air medical flying in the States and worked with the Royal Oman Police. We flew with two crew, we were instrument-rated, current, and proficient. We got plenty of training. We had all the bells and whistles in the aircraft to autopilot, everything's safe. A large contrast to most American EMS pilots. Flying without the proper equipment has killed more aviators than bullets ever have. Because you just lose it. And really experienced pilots with a lot of flight time have died by inadvertently going into a cloud and not having an autopilot to help them out or a second pilot to help them out. But of course you put a second pilot in there, now you're talking about you gotta get a bigger helicopter, it's gonna cost more money, you have to have two engines instead of one to get, have the oomph to get you off the ground. Okay, so it's all about money. Most of the programs in America flying air medical would not be allowed to operate outside our borders because they wouldn't come up to the same criteria that they need in Canada, that they need in Europe. You might think 
The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, would have regulations to ensure pilot safety. But believe it or not, the FAA falls incredibly short because of one fundamental problem. The FAA, I don't have a lot of time for the FAA. There's a lot of good people working for them, but they're overworked and they've got a schizophrenic mandate. They, can, they have to both promote air uh, commerce and regulate it. It's a conflict because they don't want to make laws that are going to put people out of business. So what they do is they come up with recommendations and they go to the operators and they say, what do you think? And they say, well, we can't afford to put autopilots in our helicopters. It'll, it'll put, put many of us out of business. So the FAA doesn't mandate it. And um, that is one of the major problems and why there's so many accidents. They know what the solution is, but it will cost too much. Whereas if it happened in Europe, if it happens in Canada, we, if, you don't, if you can't afford to get in the game, you don't get in the game. Because human life is more important than the bottom line. 2008 was the worst year on record for losing air medical folks, 27. They called the task force. The FAA said, we've got to find out how to stop these accidents because we're losing about 13 people a year in air medical. Seven months later, head of the FAA and uh, head of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, they said, from 2000 to 2008, had there been an autopilot or a second pilot out of the 123 people that died, 60 people would probably still be here today. Although at the time, Randy was far from the problem, working for Abu Dhabi Aviation in the United Arab Emirates, the deaths of American EMS pilots were hitting close to home. If the FAA is not gonna mandate that they put in the proper equipment to keep everybody alive in the air medical side, and there was a study, 94% of the crashes in air medical has been due to human error. So it's avoidable, but they have to know what the human foibles are and the human factors are to keep them out of trouble. And I've got the answer. So in January, 2013, I quit my job at Abu Dhabi Aviation to come to America to teach crew resource management to air medical programs to keep everybody alive. If they're not going to be given the tools to keep them alive by the FAA, let's work on the mental stuff to keep everybody coming home safely. So I thought, how about if I train people to my standard? I spent two months, nine hours a day, seven days a week, building a train-the-trainer course based on the AASA model, the European Aviation Safety Agency model. So it's basically training these guys to airlines pilot standards, but in the helicopter. And it's a 300 page manual and, and over five gig flash drive with all the PowerPoint presentations with embedded clips. All that sounds great, but in the absence of better equipment, what are the pilots supposed to do? Easy. I teach them how to say no. I teach them I'm not gonna do this. I teach them that they can identify a hazardous attitude. I teach them that they can identify a link in an error chain forming. 
I teach them the human factors that can cause them to make a bad decision and they can all look after each other and say, wait a minute, this is nuts. When somebody in the crew says, this is stupid, you go home. So if I can teach them the human factors that can cause them to make mistakes. Then many lives, the lives of those rescuing lives, can be saved. For the Founders Series on Our American Stories, I'm Doug Ryder. And thanks so much to Doug Ryder, and Doug is the force behind our Founders Series here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Joey for giving a helping hand on the production and putting these pieces together, as he always does. And thanks to Randy Maines for telling the story. And by the way, if you have a Founders Story from your community or just someone you know, send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. And it does not have to be simply a founder of a business. As you heard here, this is a guy who founded a movement, a safety movement, an important one for people in the field he understands and is an expert in. And by the way, it can be founders of a church, it can be founders of a nonprofit, founders of businesses, sports, franchises, whatever. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And my goodness, I never really thought about it before. That idea that, man, a hospital would just say, go get to the accident and not really chart a path and not really look at the weather patterns. And my goodness, it's so true what can happen once you're in those clouds. I have friends who fly, and I've been up there a couple of times when you get in the clouds. And let me tell you, when you're with people who aren't instrument rated, it's scary. And I don't do it anymore. I mean, I did before, but I don't do it anymore. As good as they say they are, even when they're instrument rated, even when they have the experience, I'm getting on a nice old commercial plane. Randy Maines' story here on Our American Stories, Our Founders Series. continue with our American stories and up next Robert Frost continues to be one of the most celebrated poets in American history and on this day in history in 1874 Robert Frost was born and all of our this day in histories by the way are brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College the best place in America to study all of the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. He was born in San Francisco, the son of Scottish and English immigrants. Honored frequently in his lifetime, he is only one of four individuals to have also won four Pulitzer Prizes for his poetry collections. You will hear the voice of the author himself reading a few of his most popular works. The Road Not Taken was published in 1916 as the first poem in his third collection, Mountain Interval. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, 
And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Next up is Birch's. It was another popular poem from Robert Frost. It was also included in his Mountain Interval collection. It first appeared in Atlantic Monthly in the August issue of 1915. When I see birches bent to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. Often you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many-colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They're dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. Though once they're bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterward, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But I was going to say, when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have had some boy bend them as he went out or in to fetch the cows, some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again, until he took the stiffness out of them, and not one but hung limp. Not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you used to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations, and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while, and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. 
One could do worse than be a swinger of virtues. My goodness. Lucky us. Mending Wall opened Robert Frost's second collection of poetry, North of Boston. Published in 1914, the poem is about the narrator and his neighbor, who both work every year to mend the wall along their property line. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or, or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are lows and some so nearly balls we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more there where it is. We do not need the wall, he is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows, but here there are no cows? Before I build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say else to him, but, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only, in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. On January 29, 1963, Robert Frost died in Boston due to complications from prostate surgery. He was buried at the old Bennington Cemetery in Bennington, Vermont, the epitaph engraved on his tomb is the last line from his poem, The Lessons for Today. And it reads, quote, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. And my goodness, this is the kind of poetry that, well, brings people to literature. In the end, Shakespeare, Homer, all of it so beautiful and bold. This is just human stuff. And that's why we focus on works like this, folks. And what a voice, what a read. How lucky we are to have had his poetry. How lucky we are to be able to hear it still. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And you can go there to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Their latest on C.S. Lewis, perhaps the greatest theologian and writer on all things Christian is just remarkable. Go to hillsdale.edu. The courses are free. And what they're worth for the family, for homeschoolers, for people who have been to college but never really learned the stuff that matters, 
It's all there at hillsdale.edu. This is Lee Habib, Robert Frost's story, in his own words, here on Our American Stories. to our American stories and we love music on our show and we love to tell stories of how songs came to be and today we have the story of Dolly Parton's song I Will Always Love You take it away Faith I Will Always Love You won Dolly Parton Female Vocalist of the Year at the 1975 CMA Awards. In the following June of 1974, it was issued as the second single from Parton's 13th solo studio album. It was a great success, reaching number one twice on the Billboard Hot Country Songs. But how did this song come to be at all? Or, more importantly, why? Dolly Parton has been singing her whole life. At the age of 10, she was already performing professionally. But in 1967, the country sweetheart was invited to co-host Porter Wagner's TV show. This brought her popularity to new heights. They spent years together and their duets were extremely successful. Soon, Parton's talents began to outshine that of her mentor. Parton decided to part ways with Wagner And this was how the song came to be written. This relatable, heartfelt ballad was not your average country love song. She wrote it as a farewell to her friend Porter Wagner. Dolly confessed through her song that she would always love him. Wagner didn't want Dolly to leave, but her song reduced him to tears. Thank you. I think that's got to be one of your prettiest songs well, that you've I ever written. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm glad you like it. I'll tell you what, you sang it just sort of like you mean it, too. Like well, I did it. sort of mean it. Did you? <laughs> yeah. It was beautiful and carried so much meaning that it caught someone else's attention. The king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, wanted to sing it. Elvis loved the song. That was when he and Priscilla were having their problems, which I met her recently, and she told me that Elvis loved that song, and he had sung that to her on the day of their divorce. He said she, he kind of leaned in and sang a little bit of I Will Always Love You, and so she told me how much that he loved that song, because this was recently, we were doing some business, but during that time, it's no fault of Elvis, you know, he loved the song, but Tom Parker was in defense of Tom Parker, too, his manager. You know, he made some 
wise decisions, evidently. So he knew what he was doing. But that was goes back to that other thing, because Elvis was ready to record it. I told my friends and people that he was recording it, and they were in town to do the recording. They had invited me down to the session. And Colonel Tom Parker calls me the day before and says, now you do know that Elvis is recording your song, and you do know that Elvis don't record anything that he don't publish, or at least get half the publishing on. I said, really? And I said, I can't do that. This song's already been a hit with me, and this is in my publishing company, and obviously this is going to be one of my most important copyrights, and I can't give you half the publishing. Of course, that's stuff that I'm leaving for my family. And uh, he said, well, then we can't record the song, and I was just heartbroken. I said, well, I'm really sorry. But I can't do that. It seemed to be the thing to do. I, it hurt me because I was so disappointed that I was going to have to tell my friends Elvis didn't record it. And But I just knew that that was not right and that that was not... If it had been maybe... If I didn't have my own publishing company, had the song not already been a hit, it might have been different. But I couldn't give somebody half of a song that had already been number one. Since early on in her career, Parton has been proactive in protecting the publishing rights of her songs, which has earned her millions in royalties. So saying no to Elvis was a hard decision, but no matter how much he wanted to sing it, it was hers. And over time, someone else showed interest in singing the song. Whitney Houston wanted to sing it for the soundtrack of the 1992 film The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner, which was also her film debut. Kevin Costner, a lover of music, chose the song, I Will Always Love You. After giving Costner the permission to use the song, Parton forgot all about it until one day she turned on the radio. I like to wreck and kill myself. Seriously, I had, uh, I had, had word from uh, Kevin Costner when they were doing that. His secretary had called and said they, they wanted a copy of that song. And so I sent it. And that's the last I'd heard of it. And so I was driving from my office down on 16th Avenue on Music Row. I was driving to my house in Brentwood. And uh, that's when I was still driving by myself without (laughs) worrying about it. And uh, so I had the radio on as usual. And I I just heard this voice when she did the acapella, you know, like, if I should stay... And, I, and, and, you know, it's like a dog that hears its name or something. I thought, what is that? And it, didn't, it didn't register on me, what, it, but it was so familiar. And I thought, what is that? And then she kept saying, and it was still, I knew, I knew it was something, but it, it didn't register. I thought, what is that? I know what that is. And then all of a sudden, she starts into that, and when she goes into the I Will Always Love You part, honest to goodness, I almost... I had to pull over because I was afraid because I was so caught up in that by then uh, that I had to pull over and listen to it. But it was the most overwhelming feeling that that little song of mine could be done so beautifully, so big, so overwhelming that it really almost just had a heart attack. I Will Always Love You brought these two women together who were from completely different backgrounds. Dolly from Tennessee and Whitney from New Jersey. They became inseparably connected from this song. Whitney's single was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for 14 weeks, making it one of the best-selling singles of all time. Not only that, but it holds the record for being the best-selling single by a woman in music history. 
Although disappointed that Elvis' version didn't work out, Parton was at peace. Everything seemed to work out for her, and she even said that when Whitney Houston's version came out, she had made enough money to buy Graceland. When Whitney recorded, I was like, oh good, because now I own 100% of the publishing, 100% of the writing, and I did really well with that. But I didn't blame Elvis. I did, it was a decision I had to make at the time, and I'm glad I did. The way she did it, David Foster, who arranged and produced it, and Kevin Costner, who's the one that just you know wanted to do the song in, in the movie. But when I heard her sing it, because I'd always loved her singing anyway. I mean, what a voice she had. I mean, at that time, nobody could outsing her. But when I heard it, I, my heart just stopped. I just couldn't believe that my little song, my little simple song that was written straight from my heart, you know, about a, a subject uh, that we all know and relate to one way or another, whether it's someone that's died or kids going off to school. People relate to that song in so many ways. But that's when I realized that the song was really important because and could be done anyway it was it was overwhelming people say well that's Whitney's song I said that's fine give her the credit I just want the cash to make that such a worldwide hit mine would have never have done that but since then people have done it you know as instrumentals as duets and all of that so it's just one of those simple little songs that says nothing and yet everything on February 11th 2012 Whitney Houston died. Dolly shares when she first got the news. I was in L.A. I was out sick for about 12 days, and it just happened like it was happened on a Saturday, and I was not feeling great at all, so I was very emotional anyway, just, you know, how you feel when you ain't feeling great. And so I just, it, was a, it just overwhelmed me, just, just a fellow musician in general or a fellow singer, but the fact that it was Whitney, because I always say on my show, I'll always love Whitney Houston, because she just took my song that I wrote about the Porter Wagner days and had a couple of hits on it myself. But then she took it all over the world, and just hearing that song played those, you know, that week that I was there, and they were playing it all the time behind everything, and it was it was just overwhelming to me. And then when, when they buried her and they lifted that coffin up, and that song went into that, man, my heart just exploded and I just started to cry like you wouldn't believe it just hit me that just how connected we would always be and how that song had meant so much to both of us for different reasons and what it meant to the to the world and I have not performed that song since she passed away and I'm sure that it's going to have a whole different emotional feeling for me when I sing it for the first time. Just hours after her death I Will Always Love You reached the top of the U.S. iTunes charts. It was Whitney's signature song. I Will Always Love You won Whitney the 1994 Grammy Award for Record of the Year and also Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. I Will Always Love You is a song that we can all relate to in one way or another. It began with Dolly Parton singing this song to her mentor who had done so much for her. And the song lives on through the voice of Whitney Houston. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story. Whitney Houston, she grows up African-American in Newark, New Jersey, in a big city. And, well, Dolly Parton. The Smoky Mountains of rural Tennessee and a white girl. And what a story about the two of them and how they came together. Also, what a story about business. 
My goodness, she had the good sense, Dolly, to not sell half to Elvis Presley of what she owned. My goodness, this is a story of America, right? Our ideas are protected through intellectual property rights. A great love story about one of the greatest love songs ever recorded, the story of I Will Always Love You, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to, well, just about anything. And we do eulogies, we do stories of songs, and every once in a while, we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past, stuff that, well, schools just aren't paying attention to anymore, but we're a part of our heritage for so long. And one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman. And his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on this subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths. See you tramping with the foremost, pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize. World of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachments steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. From Nebraska, from Arkansas, central inland race are we. From Missouri, with the continental blood interveined, all the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers, oh pioneers. 
O resistless, restless race, O beloved race in all, O my breast aches with tender love for all, O I mourn and yet exult, I am wrapped with love for all, pioneers, O pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress, bend your heads all, raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress, pioneers, O oh pioneers. See my children, resolute children, by those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter, ages back in ghostly millions frowning there behind us urging, pioneers, O oh pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping, pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world, falling in, they beat for us with the Western movement beat, holding single or together, steady moving to the front, all for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved and varied pageants, all the forms and shows, all the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying. Pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb, Blow the brother orbs around, all the clustering suns and planets, all the dazzling days, all the mystic nights with dreams, pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us, they are with us, all for primal needed work, while the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading, we the route for travel clearing, pioneers. O oh, pioneers, O oh, you daughters of the West, O oh, you young and elder daughters, O oh, you mothers and you wives, never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united, pioneers, O oh, pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies, shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest, you've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling, soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers, not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and parling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers, do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? Still be ours, the diet hard, and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? Did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way? Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, 
pioneers, oh pioneers, till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak call. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it wind. Swift to the head of the army, swift spring to your places, pioneers, oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of the highly popular television show, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) The stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them, so they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education. Uh, what's this crap? Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid, have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead Two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who lived somewhere in the Southwest were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of (sighs) (laughs) superseded Wayne and Garth's not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge. I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook and I kind of had them lying around and there was this Sick and Twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career, but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts, I thought, okay, what should I should animate something with these guys. And I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything, I don't know, in probably like two or three minutes. <laughs> I, I remembered a kid saying something about frog baseball, which is kind of a sick game, you know. I guess I was thinking about these just out of control 14-year-olds that have known growing up. <laughs> that would be cool. Beavis and Butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992. Here's executive producer Abby Turkley. 
We wanted to, to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turkuli calling me and saying, um, you know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see, because I'm hearing my voice going, huh, you know, and then seeing these kids going, huh. This said to be continued, the other Would you like to see more? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy can I buy this out of the tape machine? Okay. Could you like record the tape for us? You, you want a copy of the tape? Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors. And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, 10 years. I've never heard anyone say, Can I buy the tape? And so it was frog baseball. We tested it with women as well in separate groups. Uh, and I think the women were cooler at first. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was, it was irritating, irritating to look at. I just thought it was awful. Uh, you just weren't reaching us, dude. I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what? We got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help. Have you Heimlich the victim? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Boy, the, uh, the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th, and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day. And they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I, I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing, it's about writing stupid. Which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. Do you think that's funny, butthead? I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. Remember after the, the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like, I'm gonna go bury my head in the sand, and. Uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> I was like, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. We got a one. And oh, good. Then the next night it was 1.2. The next night, it's the same episode airing over and over again. <laughs> and by Friday, it was like 1.8. The first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live action Wayne's World type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we literally put the brakes on everything for a while. At first I was thinking of just, there are these two guys who uh, are just around each other all the time. They don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends. And so there's just these inside jokes that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time. Okay, Armstrong. Here. Armijo. Present. Baca. Yo. Butt kiss. <laughs> What's wrong with you two? We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. <laughs> Is it really still that funny? <laughs> Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name Buttkiss? <laughs> <laughs> that does it. Principal's office now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, 
Christopher Brown. They were clearly self-destructive. You've had destructive impulses, right? Uh, no. <sighs> but no matter how miserable their existence were, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a, a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> money, money, money. <laughs> Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. <sighs> Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But they always managed to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks, you s they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I think he likes them. <laughs> they are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of, in their own way, philosophize about things, which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's working. Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with a drawing, and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, I just drawn ha, ha, ha on there. Um, I started doing that laugh, and I was kind of, like, going, like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it till probably two years into the show that it was, there was a guy at my high school. He was... Uh, really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just, you'd see him in the hallway, and I would always see him when the hallway was empty, and he'd just start, like, he's one of these guys that he'd start going, hey, Mike. And so when I, was do, when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, and I would get, I would be doing it sort of to get into character, to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time anyway. <laughs> the Beavis laugh, there was a guy who was, uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. I hope he doesn't figure out who he is, <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he, just, like, he was biting his lip all the time and just kind of going like, <laughs> like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. <laughs> That's right, everyone. If we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community. Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist! Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably... That's probably my favorite character other than Beavis to, to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and um, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you, having grown up in the Deep South, to be able to travel to Europe and experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead.
This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead, and I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler. Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. <laughs> Very good, Butthead. That's right. I wanted to have this, this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. The, the, only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons, they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying. Why don't we each tell what impressions we took away from the museum? <clears throat> hey, Butthead, what did you take away? <laughs> boy, oh boy. What I wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little bastards that took my mower. Mr. Anderson, there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, actually, and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a Texas accent. I had a paper out when I was a kid. My brother and I had one. You'd go collect at the end of the month, door to door back then. We went up to the door, and uh, the guy looked at us, you know, and, he, and so it was our first month collecting. He says, well, you ain't my paper boy. And my brother said, yeah, well, I know. Your paper boy quit, and we're the new paper boys. And he, well, I know what my paper boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're going to have to cancel your cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm going to get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription. And <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa, it's Todd. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a, of a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this. Uh, we had a family down at the end of, the, of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle, ride on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the shit out of us whenever he could. I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands. There was a, a band director in ninth grade, I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, and he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning, and he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was, oh, 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 what are you doing? Uh, watch your m mouth, you little sons of... Ah, Here's what? head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is starting to suck. <laughs> Do I get into heaven or not? There were Senate hearings in the fall of 93 where uh, Senator Hollings cited us as, uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly he was well-informed. <laughs> Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buff, Code, and Beaver. Boy, they've been nothing but trouble. Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just 
It's the same thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's South Park co-creator Trey Parker. I remember uh, right before South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he, uh, he was sitting there going, well, you know, don't, uh, don't let people take advantage of you because <laughs> they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said stop. Here's rapper Snoop Dogg. First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and uh, just put the TV on MTV and I peeped it out and I was tripping because they was acting a fool. Shut up. You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have, like, lots of friends. Uh, not really. <laughs> Are we healthy? Here's writer Larry Doyle. Mike could make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He could say, butthead saying, make it snappy. And there's just something about the way he said it. And, it, you know, it helped a little bit that butthead is a little bit of a lisp. You men want a date. Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the kite, Beavis. Cool. <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, was a giant fan of the of the show, and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were. Oh no. We cannot allow ourselves to think that. Here again is Trey Parker. The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh, uh, and and almost a, a very open your eyes people. And and you know, now I know Mike en- enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know, and, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy, and he actually, you know, was, was trying to say something, you know, that, that this, this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. I'm starting to feel it. You know, Beavis, it doesn't get any better than this. Something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is, you don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy, and, and it inspired us in that way, just to go, let's just do it ourselves, we'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It, it really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there, and, and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I always reference TV I grew up on, because that's the, that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're gonna, you know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television. And I, I loved the Beverly Hillbillies, Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavis and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Oh, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well... I guess so, but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? You know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor, even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was... I mean, they were just dumb guys. 
And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of dumb guy comedies. <laughs> you guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid. Here's former president of Viacom, Van Toffler. I think it's really about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do and the prism through which they see life and particularly innocent, one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they are really based, and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd sad to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real, they were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it, Cheech and Chong. I don't, you know, you just kind of want to be there with those guys, and, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category. I'm just glad it's finally over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, really. At least now we can get on with our lives. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, he gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these, silly, stupid. The Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage adolescents, boys. Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. Hanging out on the coast, oh well, those plans are long gone. And he said, there goes my life. There goes my future, my everything, might as well kiss it all goodbye. There goes my life. And you're listening to Kenny Chesney singing There Goes My Life. It changed his life, for sure. Catapulted his career. This song raced to the top of the charts. And on this show, we love music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's nothing like it. Shut up, just listen. We're going to do the story behind the story of this song, and we've done it for a few others. Gimme Shelter, what a story that is. Another Brick in the Wall, and we did it for Light My Fire. And this song, There Goes My Life, has quite a a story behind it. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend, fellow writer Wendell Mobley. And this is from Country Weekly. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell... Neil would tap into a tender, secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, why don't we write about a teenage boy who got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I'd even had the words, there goes my life, in my notebook for over a year. At that point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he fathered while he was still in high school. My daughter's name was Lexi, Wendell explained to me. We lost her 
when she was a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. So these good friends didn't know this until this moment. Though he had been Neil's friends for years, Wendell had never shared this part of his life. Quote, I'd been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like now. Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at the right time. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing that first verse on the porch, says Neil, who's the father of two young daughters himself. I've got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had been and finding out something like that, man. Neil's voice trails off after that, overcome by the emotional impact. He pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts. That just got all over me. I broke down in front of my wife. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions poured out like water. We cried and wrote and sang and ate and cried and wrote and sang and ate, says Neil with a tension-releasing laugh. There wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close to me. Kenny Chesney recorded that powerful tune about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infancy to adulthood with a decided change of emotions along the way. The single took off with rocket speed, hitting number one after just a few weeks. But beyond its chart success, There Goes My Life has wielded a far-reaching impact. Neil and Wendell have heard countless stories of estranged fathers and daughters actually reuniting, all because of their song. And of course, it changed for so many people. The whole idea of carrying a child to birth that otherwise they may not have wanted to. Right after we were done writing that song, Wendell remembers, Neil and I talked about how this was a perfect marriage between personal and universal storytelling. It's these kinds of stories when you know it's happening all over that is really so rewarding to hear. So I wanted to take you to an ASCAP songwriters conference in Boston. And I love these ASCAP songwriters conferences and you hear us play them. Wendell was there, and so was Kenny Chesney. And here's Kenny giving props and respect to the writer and the man whose song, whose story turned into this song. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney. I will tell you that when I, I remember the first time I heard this song and my producer, Buddy Cannon, uh, we were uh, not in his Cadillac, Craig, but we were in his truck. And he goes, I got, you got to hear something. And he played me this song. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, are you sure that we can record this song? Because I knew it was one of those songs that, that you just don't come across every day. You know, and it was... A, um, As a songwriter, this is the best bridge to any song I've ever heard. This bridge kills <laughs> that me. That kills me. I, so, I cry, I'll cry when he sings it. it freaks me out every time. So this, this song right here, I just want you guys to know... I think it might have was it, it might have been the first single off of the When the Sun Goes Down record. I it think. was, yeah. So, um, but I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck, hearing this song, and it was just I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life. And that's how much I love this song. Help me out, Kenny. And like Sinatra, who always thanked his writers. Uh, Kenny Chesney always, and all these country artists, always give props to the writers, because without the song, well, what do you have? And so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way, for my money, I like Wendell's version better. 
but you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley. Spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer in the end sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge, and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and a few thousand diapers later That mistake you thought he made it Covers up the refrigerator, oh, yeah. And he loves that little girl. Mama waiting to tuck her in as she fumbled up those steps. She smiled back at him, dragging that teddy bear sleeve. Blue eyes and bounce and curls And he smiled There goes my life There goes my future My everything I love you Crown be clothes fifteen pairs of shoes in his American Express. He checked the old slam the hood, said you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the West Coast. Bang! 
That first chorus, There Goes My Life, Resignation. Second chorus, There Goes My Life, Little Girl Running Up the Stairs. Third chorus, There Goes My Life, She's Out of Here. The house is empty. Absolutely beautiful. The story of the story behind the story of There Goes My Life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And great job to the whole crew here as always. There goes my 